Welcome to the LSC Review of Books podcast. I'm Amy Mollett. In this episode, we talk to experts about China. What is the role and meaning of Chinatown in the lives of Chinese people in London? And how much do ancient peace philosophies influence the country's politics today? Researchers at Middlesex University, Rosemary Sales and Jia Lin, walk us through London's Chinatown to discuss identity, migration and meanings of home for Chinese immigrants. Chinatown is a very visible presence for the Chinese people, but yet Chinese people are the most scattered of any ethnic group in this country, therefore tend to be less visible in other uh, contexts. John Gittings, former East Asia editor at The Guardian and research associate at SOAS, talks to Cheryl Brumley about China's early peace philosophers and the importance of engaging the country in diplomacy. China has, in a sense, punched below its weight on the international scene, partly, I think, because it's not being encouraged to do otherwise. I think it could be a, a partner for peace. And Ting Zhu, research fellow at LSE's Economic History Department, speaks about growing up in China in the wake of the Cultural Revolution and about how her parents' boundless passion for books was an inspiration to her. Although they lived modestly, they never hesitated to buy books for me and to encourage me to explore and learn about the wider world. All this and more, coming up. This is the LSE Review of Books podcast. The LSE Review of Books publishes daily book reviews on all subjects in the social sciences. Visit us at lsereviewofbooks.com. A team of researchers at Middlesex University spent months interviewing Chinatown's residents and workers for their research project, Cityscapes of Diaspora, Images and Realities of London's Chinatown. The project investigated the role and meaning of Chinatown in the lives of Chinese people in London and the sometimes conflicting interests and activities involved within this space. The researchers shed new light onto the experiences of this diverse population and their relations to each other and to Chinese populations elsewhere. I met with Professor of Social Policy at Middlesex University, Rosemary Sales, and PhD candidate Jia Lin to discuss the findings of the project and to investigate the area's curiosities and complexities. We met for the interview at the Pagoda in London's Chinatown, and I start by asking Rosemary about the initial aims of the research project. We chose to look at Chinatown as a very important aspect of the Chinese diaspora, and what we were interested in looking at was what Chinatown meant to people and what its relationship was in relation to home, meanings of home. And Jao, could you tell us a little bit about what you can sort of see around here? It's obviously quite busy this morning. Of course, we can see that um, one of the characters of Chinatown is food. So every restaurant and the food store where they will load their stuff, you can see food from even imported abroad. And we also see people from... Um, from other organizations, they're planning for an event near Pagoda. So here, they, that's where they meet as well. The Pagoda is a traditional meeting point in Chinatown. When we did our project, we spent quite a bit of time just talking to people who, who came here. Sometimes people just stood around and chatted. And uh, we, we had very interesting little conversations with people. For example, a young woman, a young student who was based here, but she comes, she said she comes here at least every month to do her shopping and to meet her friends and just feel Chinese. Could you tell us about why you come to Chinatown? 
Every week I come here, and this week I came to meet friends here at the pagoda. And any other week I go to a Chinese church nearby. Is the pagoda an important meeting place for you? Everyone knows this place, so if we meet people, we meet at the pagoda. Chinatown acts as a very symbolic home, so the existence is actually more important than the attachment to the particular place. I mean, I think in terms of who comes very often, it tends to be new migrants looking for information, contacts. It's still very much a magnet for, for that sort of group. But also you get a lot of the older people who came from Hong Kong and perhaps never learnt English and still feel very much familiar within Chinatown and will come to also the Chinese Community Centre which provides facilities for them. So we've come around the corner to Gerard Street. The first thing that greets us are these beautiful red gates. Zha, could you tell us a little bit about the gates and the meaning behind them? There's a name uh, writing there, London Chinatown, and there's a poem on the gate as well. For the Chinese people, this is the real symbol of London Chinatown. When we say Chinatown, it, you usually see the picture of this gate. And this is built by the Chinese state. So we can say that there's an involvement of Chinese states in the building of London Chinatown. So the Chinese, if I'm getting this right, the Chinese government paid for these to go? Yes, in, in the 1980s. Chinatown, as you know, has got a long, very long history and it really developed in the 1950s here. Before that, it was in the uh, Docklands area. And it was during the period of the 60s, 70s, it became institutionalised uh, as a Chinatown. And initially, the Hong Kong government supported some of the organisations here. But then, of course, with the changes in, Ch- in China in the late 70s, the Chinese government itself started to look to the overseas Chinese and um, to build relationships with the organisations. Can you tell us a little bit about the different groups in Chinatown and the notion of a Chinese community? The notion of Chinese community itself is obviously quite problematic because there are many different communities, both in terms of place of origin, the generation of migration, but also in terms of things like legal status. For example, the people who came over uh, from Hong Kong in the uh, late 1950s, 1960s, they had the right to, to come here, and then they brought families in later. Many of the new migrants, particularly those from parts of China, who've come here as economic migrants often uh, entered secretly, don't have any legal status. Of course, you've also got uh, people like Sha, who came here as a student in the last decade, and, and, and many skilled migrants who've come and therefore have very different interests in terms of Chinatown. And Sha, could you talk us through um, sort of identity and, and generations and how that, how that might change and how people might identify? We can see that there's actually a very dynamic uh, construction of how people see themselves. The new migrants who are Mandarin speakers and we can see that they, are, they all came here for food, and to, for meeting, etc. And we can see also the British-born generations who, let's say, just behind us, this uh, a restaurant who are owned by British-born people, they actually give a new look to the Chinatown's appearance. Also, you can see these divisions in terms of the organisations that are based in Chinatown and around Chinatown. For example, you've got organisations which reflect the business community. You've got a community centre which serves the needs of a, of a different group, although it's funded by some of the big, the richer areas. You've also had political organisations who've started here, like Ming Kuan, 
which uh, started as a sort of anti-racist organisation following a, a racist incident in Chinatown. So these re- reflect different sorts of interests. So now we've come down past the pagoda again, round the back of the cinema, and we're in Leicester Court, and we're just coming into the Chinese Community Centre. My name is Perry Fong. He's a Chinese community center, center manager. Yeah, we just moved in five months ago, and I don't mind to show you around our new center. That is the Qigong class, something like Tai Chi. One of the things that struck me when we did our Chinese projects was how people described themselves as old when they're quite young. Yeah. People of 50 were saying, oh, I'm too old now. So the older, but the older people are certainly doing the exercise classes. Yeah, they prefer do the exercise uh, like Tai Chi, Qi Gong, or even some Chinese chess game. Not much. I refuse much because the image of other people is gambling. You know, we are in between the casino already. Upstairs, downstairs, all casino. So I refuse much. Just to enjoy their time. You know, it for the elderly. They just would like have the Chinese community centre speak their language because they might have the language barrier in outside. So mainland Chinese, they came here as I said, uh, new migrants. So the new yeah. migrants, not yeah, the elderly. Migrants came language. here. Mm. They they want to learn some, mm. you know, skills, sure. so that they can enhance their their chance to get a job. Table tennis, singing class, qigong, taekwondo. So we're back into Leicester Court now. We've just come out of the community centre. And Rosemary, you pointed out that there's some interesting intersections between who funds the community centre. Yes, the Chinese community centre was originally in Gerard Street at the top of a building over restaurants. And it was quite a um, much smaller and more shabby space. And they held it for some time with a low rent and then the landlords wanted them out. And... In finding a new space, the community centre managed to forge some kind of an alliance with the Hippodrome, which is the casino operator, and they supported their application for a very large casino. And the part of that was the, that they were offered rent-free accommodation at, that we've just seen at the top of the building. So I think it's a sort of example of, of the way in which certain different interests can conflict but also come together. Chinatown is much more busy now and we see more, even more diverse of the uh, population here. We can see that the trucks are driving away very soon. The food shops and the restaurants, they are pretty much ready for the day. I remember reading in the report that there were some differing ideas about Chinese New Year. I think somebody had written it off as a kind of tourist yeah. attraction and, and felt that some key ideas had been lost, but others find it as a source of identity yes i think that's true and i think obviously it depends on how you how you feel about this society as well we did come to chinatown as a group um for one of the chinese new years didn't we and it was i certainly my observation then was that it was mainly chinese people uh, who were involved who were coming but it was a very big event then which was very much institutionalized it was supported by the mayor of london by the Mayor of Westminster. There was a. It was very much around a, pre- a presentation of China, Chinatown to the world. 
And, but I think that also reflects the way Chinatown in general has these different images. It is an institutionalised part of the tourist agenda, you know, it's in guidebooks and so on. But I think it also has those other private spaces where people come to feel at home, to find information, to, see, to make contact, to find work. So it's, some, it's a very complex place. It's not one thing or the other. It's a, it's a whole combination of different things and diff- means different things as you settle also in London. And what about other Chinatowns all over the world? I'm thinking about New York, I'm thinking about other cities. London's Chinatown, where, what's its place? I think uh, Chinatowns in America are seen are much bigger, although very different now. They're, set, they're moving out to the suburbs rather than being in the centre, although clearly there, there are still big Chinatowns, Chinese areas in, in, in New York and places like that. It was interesting, some of our interviewees talked about visitors coming from overseas and wanting to show off their Chinatown. They were quite competitive about our Chinatown compared with other other Chinatowns. One of the issues that we were really interested in in relation to Chinatown was this notion of visibility and invisibility and the way that the Chinatown is a very visible presence for the Chinese people but yet Chinese people are the most scattered of any ethnic group in this country and therefore tend to be less visible in other uh, contexts and also that they tend to perceive themselves as invisible socially and that they tend not to be very engaged in politics tend to be seen as hard working and not claiming benefits and so on so it was the way in which Chinatown represents this very visible presence for a very scattered community but another dimension to that was something we've touched on as we've been walking is the way the very visible activities go on but there's lots of invisible activities as well and they may be invisible in that they're hidden upstairs but also for a casual visitor you wouldn't necessarily know what was happening if you see a groups of people meeting with their knapsacks carrying all their belongings going off with somebody and that's probably a gang master taking them off to work so it's those kind of dimensions which we found very fascinating as one of the diaspora I think it's one of the entrance where we can learn about how we can shape our idea of who we are and it's an amazing place for us to even learn about diaspora and even learn about ourselves. That was Rosemary Sales and Xia Lin. You can find a link to their multi-authored project, Cityscapes and Diaspora, on Middlesex University's online research repository, or find the link on our podcast page. In his new book, The Glorious Art of Peace, former East Asia editor at The Guardian, John Gittings, makes an impassioned case for putting peace first. Gittings focuses on China throughout his book, looking at peace philosophy during the Warring States period, around 400-200 BCE. Cheryl Brumley starts off by asking him about this era in Chinese history before assessing the role of peace in modern-day Chinese foreign policy. My point of departure for writing the book was that I wanted to make a comparison between early Chinese thought and early Greek thought. So I began to look at what we call the classics in both cultures. I looked at Homer's Iliad 
and rediscovered, that there's a strong thread of what you might call a counter-narrative of peace, the peace which is frustrated. So I then went on to look at the Chinese philosophers with whom I was familiar from uh, the times when I was a student uh, in a rather different light. And, of course, I was aware that most people are familiar with the writings of Sun Tzu on the art of war. So I began to look at the main schools of philosophy, and I became aware that what you're looking at is um, a lively debate between the Confucians, between the Moists, uh, and even the, even the Taoists, and the advocates of war. And if you can imagine for a moment yourself sitting, drinking tea, just inside the city gate of one of the city-states of China at that time, you might find yourself in the company of philosophers who were about to go and give advice to the rule of that state on whether to go to war or whether to uh, seek peace. If you look at the arguments of Mencius, Mengzi, for example, the first and foremost follower of Confucius, you will find a very clear statement that peace is preferable to war. And you'll also find very strong criticism of the arguments of the strategists who wished to lead or mislead their rulers into war when often it was self-defeating. And do you liken these philosophy schools to modern-day think tanks? Did they have quite a lot of influence, these advocates for peace? Of course, we are only peering dimly through what survives of the text. It rather looks as if you would put forward your argument, and if the, uh, the ruler, the, the duke, was convinced by it, and let's say he decided not to go with it, go to go with the war with a neighbouring state. If that turned out to be misguided advice, you might pay for it with your life, or you might have to pack up in a hurry and go to another state to give your advice. And the same with the military strategists as well. So it was a high risk of giving this sort of advice. And as you touched on a book that most people will recognise is Sun Tzu's The Art of War, but you say many more philosophers and thinkers in the Confucian tradition countered this overt militarism with thoughts on peace. Can you speak more specifically about them in philosophies like Taoism? The philosophy of Taoism associated with Lao Tzu often described as inaction. That is not actually what he meant. What he meant was not going against the grain of nature. To go with the grain of nature is going in a peaceful direction. It doesn't mean that you should refrain from all activity. Mordza, again, he preaches the doctrine of universal love, talks about reciprocity. In other words, he's talking about the relationship between individuals being positive and kindly and peaceful towards another individual invites the same feelings and the same behavior in return. And he applies that to the relationship between states. Again, it's a reciprocal relationship. If you adopt a peaceful policy towards a neighboring state, then you will be rewarded in turn. To put it in modern language, it's a suggestion that mutually beneficial relations based upon peace are more likely to be successful in antagonistic relations based on war or the threat of war. China used the Beijing Olympics in 2008 to reinforce its image of a friendly China, almost as a means to show that a rapidly developing nation need not be an antagonistic one. Though some have also questioned the country's motives for doing this, is it realistic to think that China's history with peace philosophy will aid its benign rise? Of course, over the decades, it has always been suggested that China has expansionist aims. I remember in the 1960s, when it was being argued that China would use its new atom bomb, primitive as it was, to carry out nuclear blackmail. Also, it was alleged that China would use the Vietnamese war to expand into Southeast Asia, 
whereas it was pretty clear at the time that China and Vietnam um, disagreed on many things, and Vietnam was certainly not a Chinese puppet. And the idea of China expanding Southeast Asia has always been far-fetched. So China has, has in spite of uh, the accusations against it, there's never really been any suggestion that China follows or wishes to follow an expansionist policy, an imperialist policy. And I, can, I recall somebody fairly senior in the Chinese foreign ministry saying to me, in relation to the question, does China want to become a superpower? The answer was, we've seen what it's like when you become number one, we would prefer to be number two. Uh, and there are also geographical reasons and or political reasons which, which make it, in my view, more sensible to see China essentially as concerned with its own affairs. Now, you're quite right, in the Olympics and, and before as well, but uh, around that time, there was a particular effort to project this view of China pursuing a harmonious policy, both in conduct of its internal affairs and in foreign policy too. Uh, and indeed, you had this remarkable... Uh, situation where the Chinese foreign ministry was putting out statements quoting Confucius on the need for harmony in relationships. So I think it's the only example where uh, ancient philosophy is quoted to justify contemporary foreign policy. The question is this, does the tradition in Chinese culture of, does the Confucian tradition, to use shorthand, of harmonious relationships have any operational significance? Does it have any effect? Does it affect the mindset of the Chinese leaders? We know so little about them, it's hard to give a clear answer to that. My view is that, it, yes, it does to some extent. It colours the cultural background. Would it be sufficient to restrain China if it was provoked uh, beyond measure, for example, um, if the United States intervened in the Taiwan Straits in the case of some dispute? Uh, probably not. But I think it's one of the elements which make it possible to say that China still is, to use the word in, in, in quotation marks, essentially a peace-loving country. What are the other forces at work? What can other countries do? There are a number of issues where we should be trying to engage the Chinese to work for a more peaceful world. First, on nuclear disarmament, I would like to see Britain and China as both being in a comparable position, in other words, as relatively minor members of the Big Five deliver more substantially the promise which was made in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty by the nuclear powers that they would move towards nuclear disarmament. I would like to see China uh, engaged with, again by Britain, to seek uh, substantive reform of the Security Council, which is something about what nothing has been done in the last 20 years, even though it was said at the end of the, end of the Cold War that this would be top of the agenda. I think China has, in a sense, punched below its weight on the international scene, partly, I think, because it's not being encouraged to do otherwise. I think it could be a, a partner for peace. When we talk about peace these days, we're talking about peace in a globalised world where everyone is involved. We can no longer just talk about peace between nation A and nation B. So that does mean in, China's, in the context of China that you have to involve China as a fully functioning actor. That was John Gittings discussing The Glorious Art of Peace, out now in hardback from Oxford University Press. Ting Zhu is a research fellow at LSE's Economic History Department. Here she talks about the role of books in her family, going back to the days of the Cultural Revolution in China. 
My earliest memory of books is in my grandparents' study, both taught in a Chinese university and survived the Cultural Revolution. Despite the abuse and humiliation they suffered as intellectuals in that dark age, they never lost their love and passion for books. That revolution also adversely impacted the next generation. As teenagers at that time, my parents lost the opportunity to go to university. The world outside China, in particular the Western world, was little known to them. The door of China was closed. Books, as an important medium to disseminate information and knowledge, were also scarce. As a child, my father used to have to rent books from other people, and this expense constituted a significant portion of the limited family budget. Without enough money, my father even exchanged his lunchbox for a little book from his friend. In that period, between the late 1950s and the 1960s, many Chinese people did not have enough food to eat. Needless to say, in those afternoons, his stomach was empty, but his mind was full. Like many Chinese parents, my mother and father have put their hope in their children. Although they lived modestly, they never hesitated to buy books for me and to encourage me to explore and learn about the wider world. After my undergraduate study in China, I came to LSE for my master and then PhD studies. My outlook was suddenly broadened, and this was the first time that I was exposed to a whole range of different theories and thoughts. And it was so good to be encouraged to read broadly and to think critically. Like many international students who first come to a foreign country, I experienced so many differences in language. Teaching and studying methods, and of course, a cultural shock. As a law student who has a Chinese law background, and then came to grasp some theories and techniques of common law, I was particularly puzzled by some questions such as why should Western lawyers, in particular common law lawyers, care about Chinese law or Indian law or African law, especially if some of the scholars at least see these laws as backward. And irrational. How do Western lawyers observe and interpret non-Western law, and vice versa? How to draw links between local, national, transnational, and international laws? I am currently doing an interdisciplinary project based at the Economic History Department. The research question derives from contemporary concerns and interests in the knowledge economy, global knowledge formation, and discussions of their importance for evaluating the evolution from the economic and geopolitical great divergence to the recent great convergence between China and Europe. Project is focused upon institutions, cosmologies, and cultures, promoting or restraining the accumulation of useful and reliable knowledge for industrial and agricultural production in the East and the West in the early modern period. So, from the accession of the Ming Dynasty around the 1368 to the First Industrial Revolution, the seminal book in this field is *Compemorants: The Great Divergence*. China, Europe, and the making of the modern world economy, and I have been inspired by several books, including Juma Kia's *The Enlightened Economy* and Eric Rinnert's *How Rich Countries Got Rich and Why Poor Countries Stay Poor*. 
This project has also directed me to some studies of law and development. I hope that I will, in due course, be able to extend my study to the examination of the current convergences between the East and the West, and to explore the roles played by law in such convergence. That was Ting Zhu. To read and hear more from academics on the books that influenced them into their field, click on the Academic Inspiration tab at the top of lsereviewofbooks.com. You can also read Ting Zhu's review of When China Rules the World, one of our most popular reviews on the site, and lots of other reviews about politics and culture in China. Thanks for joining us on this episode of LSE Review of Books podcast. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley, and you can find a full list of the music and sound used on our podcast page. The LSE Review of Books is a podcast series by the Public Policy Group at the London School of Economics. We hope you'll also tune in to the latest audio series from our sister blog. European politics and policy at the LSE. Fox Europe aims to showcase commentary from the blog's academic experts on the latest issues facing Europe and the EU. In their first episode, Fox Europe examines the rise of the far right in Greece and France. Stuart Brown talks to Rainbow Murray, reader in politics at Queen Mary University, about Marine Le Pen and why the Front National leader may only represent a cosmetic change to the far right party. If you compare the Fundamental content of the manifesto for 2012 with previous years, there's little change. So I think she's been quite successful at changing the image, but not the substance. Listen and download Vox Europe at europe.eu. That's e-u-r-o-p-p.eu. Join us in the new year for more podcasts and reviews. I'm Amy Mollett. Until next time. <laughs>